welcome to episode 35 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Copeland and Corngold. Hello. Hello. My name's Chris Bland. And my name's Kelly Harlock. You're listening to episode 35 of That Classical Podcast. Welcome, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about Aaron Copeland and Eric Corngold. You might have heard of them. Maybe you haven't heard of them, but I bet my bottom dollar slash pound you're going to know some of these pieces. All right. Uh, let's just get on with it, shall we? I'm gonna, I think I'm going to start, aren't I, Chris? That would be wonderful. We're going to talk about Corn Gold, who I'll probably abbreviate to Corny several times. Corny really, G. Drew. Corny, Corny G. Corny G. Do we Love like that? that. We All should right. play the saxophone, but he doesn't. <laughs> so uh, you know what that means, guys. It's now time for the sixty-second show. Oh yes, it's time to break down these composers' lives into one minute or less. Yes. Kelly, are you feeling up to it? Of course you are. Mm-hmm. Ready. Mm. Steady. Mm-hmm. Go. Eric Wolfgang Korngold was born in May 1897 in the Czech Republic, was a total music buffon by the age of five, started composing at the age of eight, and people were like, bloody hell, he's good. So his dad took him to see Gustav Mahler, and Mahler was like, bloody hell, he's good, <laughs> and also a genius, and made sure he got uh, some great teachers. So he wrote and premiered loads of stuff as a literal child, grew up writing ballets, symphonies, operas, and loads for the stage. People loved it all. 1924, got married and had some kids. 1931, became professor at Vienna Academy, still wrote tons of stuff and started incorporating jazz into his work. Ooh. 1934, Hollywood came knocking and asked him to write the music for a film of an Summer Night's Dream. A year later, he was composing for films all over the shop and was one of the first world-renowned composers to work for Hollywood. Tried to keep up classical stuff too, but in 1938, had to flee to America permanently to escape the Nazis and swore not to write any more concert works until Hitler was removed from power. Wrote score to Robin Hood that year, got a cheeky Oscar, wrote for Hollywood uh, and used his money to help his friends flee in World War II. 1946, went back to classical music. 1947, had a heart attack and went back to Austria, but people hated his music now, so went back to America, then went back to Europe in 1954. (laughs) People still hated his music. 1956, had a stroke and died in 1957. Oh. <laughs> wow, what a life. So he well, he just kept on trying to go back to Austria and was like, oh, oh. Really and they were like, sorry, mate. Yeah, no. because, you know, people had moved on. He'd been in America for years and years. Yeah. And he was like, right now the war is over. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling fruity, feeling good. Um, <laughs> and uh, they were just like, mate, we're over it. We're sorry, over you. Sorry, Corny G, not yeah, having it. Not having it, mate. Oh, dear. But... So basically, yeah, he was this child prodigy. He was a renowned opera composer, a film composer, an arranger, a conductor, but he did die thinking, well, everyone thinks I'm a knob, oh, which no. is really <laughs> deeply sad. But then, and people did forget about him, yeah. but then in the 60s, this LP of his sort of movie music was released and people were like... Uh-huh. All right, that's I, pretty see, gr- I see you. Pretty groovy, then, as they in, said in the 60s. <laughs> Stop that. Um, <laughs> and then in the 70s, this um, sort of more golden age of Hollywood LPs were produced. <gasps> and this whole new generation was like, Corn Gold, what a lad. Oh, so through his Hollywood's yeah, film yeah, scores, yeah. they then so got then, into his... Exactly right. He was, it was like a gateway drug, <laughs> if you will, um, to his more sort of yeah classical yeah. Kind of concert orchestrated uh. works and I have to say I don't know if you have you mentioned in the 60 seconds he wrote the music for the Robin Hood film in, okay. in 1938 yeah okay let me can I just tell you a bit about this film because I think it's hilarious so it had this massive budget of two million dollars which sounds like nothing but for the time the, like it was, time, it was the it was biggest big. film I think to date oh really wow um and um, Corngold didn't have a script to work with, so he had to no go way. to the library and just like, and guess what the story would be. <laughs> yeah. And they were so pleased to have him on board 
that the studio let him pre-record the music before the film was filmed. So the cast had to act to the rhythm no and tempo of the music, <laughs> which sounds so, good. so weird and hilarious. I, I don't know. Imagine acting to time. Well, it's usually the other way around, isn't it? No, that's exactly like, it. Yeah. Nowadays, yeah, the, the composer film... will compose to what exactly the actor right. Does. And maybe yeah, what the composer gets isn't the finished product, but it's a scene from the film. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But this was the other way around, which I just find brilliant. That's and really must good. have been very strange. And I must say, not to discorn gold already, the music is a lot in that film. And the in film the film is a lot. It's just so old school Hollywood. Like nice. um, so I watched this scene, you know Robin Hood where he goes to the archery competition and he sure. and he wins it. And right? he splits the arrow. Exactly. Classic. So like yeah. every time he shoots a bullseye, the music goes in this like orchestral thing. But it, then it keeps doing it, and what, it does it like eight again. times in a row. <laughs> and like, I have to show you, the, I have to put it on Twitter. It, I was just watching it and thinking, this is ridiculous. And the whole film itself is is just wonderful. And the best, I mean, obviously the best thing about it is that it's set in Nottingham and everyone has an American accent. Which oh my God. Like, Over yonder! <laughs> it's the archery competition! Uh, which is brilliant. But okay, anyway. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Anyway. We're going to start today by talking about Korngold's Violin Concerto, yes. which is, I think, probably his one of his most famous ones. One of his pieces. most famous ones, yeah. yeah. It's, it's certainly the one that now is, like, programmed most often in concerts. Right, and it's on the radio works. a lot as well. It gets sure. a lot of play on, sure. on, um, on the radio stations over here. Uh, and technically, it's called his Violin Concerto in D, D major, but mm. it's I think it's the only one he ever wrote. It's so it's just did, his yeah. Violin Concerto. Just the Violin Concerto. If you'll allow me to say that. So look, remember when I said that in the late 30s, Korngold was like, Hitler's a knobhead. I'm not writing <laughs> any more classical music till he's gone. The, the and exact quote play, from yeah. there, verbatim, what Hitler's he said. a knobhead. But well, this was the first piece of music he wrote when that was over. So he wrote this uh, in 1945 okay. and he was like, yes! Oh, so he wasn't giving literally the second he could. He was like, all right, let's go. go. Right. But, okay, no, I love this piece and I want that to be known, but I think he ended up stealing a lot from his own previous ideas. Well, so plagiarism a, a bit like Monteverdi, you know, our friend Monteverdi. Well, like Copeland, I'm, I'm not really going to go oh, on and talk really? about it later, but yeah. he, so one of the pieces that I'll be talking about is Fanfare for the Common Man. Brilliant, yeah. And he was like, yeah, this is a pretty good tune, just going to self-plagiarise <laughs> that and put it in one of my symphonies. Amazing. Love I think it. that's fine. You know, I have listened to the things that he copied, um, and I'm not even mad. Like they're all really good. Like it's <laughs> it's totally fine with me. And if you've ever seen the ancient version of the Prince and the Pauper, I think it's from 1937. Can't say that with Errol Flynn. <laughs> wow. But if you've ever seen it by Jove, you're going to recognise this. It's it's identical to this to this film score. Oh, so he and he stole a, a lot score. of his film scores basically to um, write this piece for different. The different movements are from different films. Hilarious. Jones. But <laughs> let's give him a break. Um, you know, it was his first big classical work for bloody ages. He knew he clearly knew that he had some crowd pleasers in right, there, yeah. and uh, he just he just got them out, lads. He just got them out. So. For me, this piece, when I hear it, makes me think of some kind of Wild West chase scene. Maybe it doesn't for you, but... Oh, you and your overactive <laughs> imagination, Harlock. Great. Let's hear it now, shall we? Thank you. 
Well, there we go. That was the finale of Corn God's Violin Concerto. Mm. It's pretty good, wasn't it? I liked it. I liked the sort of, you can see the jazz influence coming in with all the nice syncopated yeah, rhythms. and sort totally. Of, she was not only like plucking on, it sounded like she was strumming the violin yeah. at that point. Right, right. It was really cool. And you know what? It goes on to be a bit more kind of um, orchestral. You know, she was plucking at the beginning, but she mm. goes on to sort Gets of... a bit more lyrical. And Sophie yeah. Mercer was the violinist, by the way. That's why we're saying she. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's a tough one for me because I also love the second movement. It's called Romance. Mm. Absolutely beautiful, that one. Yeah. So definitely I, My favourite movement is actually the first one, but you just listen to the whole thing. It's only like half an hour long. Listen to it, lads. Um, and also, just one more thing. You might be thinking, that sort of, you know, it does sound like a film soundtrack because technically it was, <laughs> but you might be thinking, well, that sort of reminds me of John Williams. And uh, you'd be right because John Williams was heavily, heavily, heavily inspired by Corngold um, throughout his, and has been throughout his career. And specifically, the Star Wars theme was basically stolen from one of Corngold's film scores. Oh, really? So if you want to know more about that, listen to the King's Row theme by Corngold. It's okay. basically Star Wars, and I'll put Sorry. a link to it, and I might even try and find it for our Spotify playlist as well, but <laughs> you, it is a bit shameless, actually, John. Yeah. Just saying. No hard feelings. Bad Classical Podcast! Next! We're talking about... Baby Serenade. Baby Serenade. Be- shut up. Well, as the title <laughs> might suggest, it is a serenade in honour of a teeny tiny baby. So, Corn Gold's baby, by the way. It wasn't some randomer's baby. It's my serenade uh, to all the babies that would out be, there. That would so be what, super it's not weird. a baby-sized serenade. No, but it's, it's for a baby. Serenade on behalf of a baby. A new person. Um, <laughs> and it was it was uh, for his second son. Which is a bit awkward. But Huge shade on his first child, yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, but uh, yeah, his second son. Now, I want to say George, but I could say Georg if we go Sound of Music about it. Gorg. Well, he, get was, Gorg. he was... Gorg. Gorg. He was Austrian, right? So, so he's probably Erich and Georg. Shut it. Shut it now. Um, But anyway, so he, Georg, George, uh, would grow up himself to be a really famous film composer, by the way. Oh, really? But anyway. Never heard of him, sorry. (laughs) Great stuff. Uh, So just to give you a bit of background, actually, in terms of... the pre-baby um, corn, corn gold when a mummy and a daddy love each other very much <laughs> no but look um, corn gold met his wife at Lutzi at a dinner party in 1917 what uh-huh. a classic what a classic and I maybe didn't mention this but Corny's uh, dad was really so he was like a music critic mm-hmm. and was really excited by the fact his son was this amazing prodigy cool. and kept him basically on a really short leash and didn't let him leave the house by himself till he was 19 and even after then it was just like a nightmare and he just wouldn't let him do anything so you know Eric uh, would sneak out to see Lutzi and and uh, it was all very romantic and and her family didn't like him and but long story short they married in 1924 it was a proper proper love story Um, and Lutzi then was Corngold's assistant she like proofread all his music and all this stuff anyway look You'll hear, basically, I just want to say that because I think you really hear the love in this music. I know that's cheesy as balls, but <laughs> it is really plain as day. Yeah. And um, apparently, now I read this in, in one place, I'm not sure if it's true, but this, it's a, in a few movements, this piece, and each movement is meant to be like a different part of the baby's day. Oh. So let's listen to this one and then let's uh, debate and discuss after this what the baby was doing. All right, then. Here we go. Thank you. 
well, it's lovely, isn't it? It is really nice, yeah. It's, um, it's weird because the, that is a really, that's the only sort of calm movement. I mean, frankly, I think it's meant to be the baby sleeping or the baby, like, painting some impressionist <laughs> painting. Um, but, There's not um, much calm about having a baby really no. then. Well, yeah, because all the other movements are like, put that thing back, help me, help me. Like, they're really weird and upbeat. Niche um, monsters ink but, reference. Yeah. Like but I still recommend you go and listen to that. It's just a really, really mm. nice little thing that he did, and it's just full of love, which I think is nice. And mm. also, so many of his works are quite like film scorey, sure. but I didn't think that one was. I thought mm. that was just like a really personal kind of tribute. Yeah, that's really sweet. Just full of crap, aren't I? Aww. But um... <laughs> no, no, it's nice when you hear like composers write more sort of personal stuff yeah. rather than stuff that's for a purpose or like part of an artistic movement. We like that. We yeah, do like that. Like classical podcast. But yeah, so look, that's those are the pieces that I chose for um, Corny, Corny G. <laughs> what else um, should we listen to? Well, look, you know, I'll level with you. I'll level with you. He was most well known for his film scores. Sure. His film scores aren't really my cup of tea, but they are those classic, you know, 30s the classic Hollywood, Hollywood films. Sounds, and if you're right. into that, you're going to bloody love those. So <laughs> he wrote so many, so just go and go yeah. and look at those. Amazing. Um, but otherwise, you know, he actually was really famous for opera and, and singing oh, pieces. Right. I didn't include any of those today because... I just thought these ones were more fun. But uh, he's got a really famous opera called Die Torte Stadt. Is that right, Chris? That is right. And that's probably one of his most famous things. Beautiful, yeah, beautiful songs in that. Mm. And just, you know, a couple of other things dotted around. I'll put a selection of things on the Spotify and you can just have a look around. And I'll also put the things that John Williams <laughs> stole on Spotify too. So you can enjoy that. One, two, one, two, three. So before we continue, we'd really like to say a massive thank you to all of our patrons. Thank you so, so much. Uh, if you'd like to get your name read out on the show, then do just head over to our Patreon page to find out more details. And maybe you'll get thanked just like this. <laughs> this is just a small selection of our patrons to start with. If you don't hear your name here, listen out for a future episode and we'll read your name out then. So we'd like to give a massive thank you to... Kelly Kahn Laura Catus NWF Ramon Blanquer Revolution Harmony Rhonda Wallace Sarah Ruff McCafferty Stuart Bishop Riella Jones and Helen Axton Thank, Thank you, you so much <laughs> Right, next it's me talking about Aaron Copeland A.A. Ron Copeland no, Yes, nice, nice reference uh, Which of course means it's my turn to do the old 60 second show Congratulations I'm tremendously excited as always Are you ready? Yes are you steady? No. Go. Aaron Copeland, born 1900, died in 1990. He was born in Brooklyn, no huge exposure to music, but was talented and learned very quickly. Instead of going to college, he went to Paris to study with a woman, a woman, named Nadia Boulanger. Uh, she was sick. She knew so much about all of music, except to him as a student, and he ended up staying in Paris for three years. Uh, he hung out with all the cultural cool people there, started making a name for himself, moves back to New York, uh, wants to follow the ideas of a photographer named Alfred Stieglitz um, and affirm and promote America. Uh, he copies Les Cis from Paris, hangs out with other US composers, looks to jazz and folk tunes to create a populist style of American music. Not everyone agrees with this, but he's like, shut up, snobs, and carries on. Uh, good careers are compared but oh no, 1950s, communism. Uh, he gets hauled in front of Joseph McCarthy, who manages to skirt around this, and uh, keeps living his best life, travelling the world, and soaking up lots of musical ideas. Becomes hugely celebrated, helps out lots of young composers, gets the nickname Dean of American Music. Uh, he's oh. also big pals with the famous Mexican composer Carlos Chavez, mm -hmm. and they were like, uh, forget you, Europe, time to create our own tradition. Woo! 
Ten seconds. Uh, in his last years, he stopped composing so much and mainly conducted. Uh, he'd sort of run out of ideas. He was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and respiratory problems Five and seconds. died to the tooth the 2nd of December, <laughs> 1990. <laughs> to the tooth. That was a minute on the dot. Well done. I'm very well timed. Um... A woman? Have you seen that, James, like in James Bond? Have you seen that? Where there's Which a doctor one? and she's like, I'm Dr. Smanenfle. And uh, Sean Connery is like, a woman? Like that. Adam and Joe have this, like, um, Adam Buxton has this amazing thing. I'm going to put it on Twitter, but it's great. All right. Carry on. So, moving swiftly on to the first piece that I'm going to talk about, uh, which is. Appalachian Spring, which is a piece that he wrote in 1944. Um, So it started life as a ballet. Um, A choreographer, Martha Graham, wanted an American ballet, basically. And Copeland was like, yo, right here, I'm an American composer. Mm -hmm. I write music that is American. Mm -hmm. So he wrote it as a ballet for her, which he then adapted the next year into an orchestral suite, which is the version that's more commonly played and more commonly known these days. Gotcha. And this music sort of presents an idealised version of America. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's quite difficult to express in words when you listen to it. It just sounds very American. Okay. So I think the the elements that he includes in it is sort of lots of very pure harmonies. Uh, it sounds very spacious, very grand. It's mm-hmm. sort of really evocative mm-hmm. of the country's sort of size and pioneer spirit. So this, right. this uh, ballet, the Appalachian Spring, mm-hmm. is about like pioneers and setting up and forging out, <laughs> out west. Out on the range, yeah. Exactly like, oh, that. did you ever read Little House on the Prairie? No. When I was growing up. Up. So my mum's American. She made me read Laura Ingalls. All our American listeners, I'm sure you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> she, you know, this little English daughter. She made me read Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie, and it's all about that time. There we go, and yeah. uh, there were like 20 books, and I <laughs> did not read them all. Sorry, mum. Continue. But yeah, so <laughs> this music is much that, much like it's Little, little House, House on the Prairie. Prairie. There you go. But in music, great. So he actually wrote this before he gave it a title, and so the title came from a poem. Uh, so he was always like quite amused when people are like, oh, yeah, Copeland, it sounds exactly like the Appalachian Mountains. Right. You must have had them in your head when you pictured this. And yeah. he was like, definitely wrote it before I had a title for it. Oh, my God, yeah, no yeah, way. Yeah. Oh, so that's quite good. That's cool. Uh, let's have a listen. See what you think. nice isn't it it's sort of the sun rising across it is the isn't it across like yeah or like a canyon or something yeah, yeah. we're talking absolute rubbish aren't we but no no because that was I... that was literally the idea behind it well, and then. so i'll go on to mention this mm. a bit more later but that's the sort of american sounding style in inverted commas really that lovely. he created yeah i've never heard that before actually really really nice yeah so um he, as I mentioned very briefly during the 60-second intro, um, mm. he was copying the philosophy of a photographer-artist named Stieglitz, Alfred Stieglitz, mm. and the basic the phrase for this was a firm America. So it was all about mm. um, at the turn of the 20th century, where obviously the cultural world was so dominated by Western and 
Central Europe, um, and that America was like, actually, we've got stuff to say. We want to like mm. put forward our version of it. And for Copeland, this was very intimately bound together with politics. So right. he was pretty radically left-wing for the time, even by the standards of the day. So a piece like this is sort of less politically explicit than others of his. So for example, he's got a piece called The Lincoln Portrait, which uh, takes snippets of Lincoln's, Abraham Lincoln speeches and turns them into essentially a sort of socialist poem. So like oh reframes and rephrases mm, what he's saying to mm. sort of advance the case for socialism in America. Wow. But so his political idea behind this was presenting a sort of unified, idealised version of America that supported its people. So it was nationalistic without being isolationist or jingoistic. Wow. So it was not like Trump's America first, was, but more sort yeah. of a firm America. So say, be proud of being American and sort of support our people without being like, Screw you, everyone. I mean, to the Americans listening, does that make you feel proud to be American? I mean, it's so funny because I listen to that and I just think, what a lovely tune. <laughs> That's so nice. Just the half but, American in yeah. you not feel a swell of pride. <laughs> I do. I do. Sure, I do. Um, no, I'm just really interested to see if anyone actually feels that more like political message of it. Well, so I think they do. But one sort of unintended side effect of it was that because it's so, so American, mm. um, but in sort of quite broad terms, mm. his music's actually been used across it, across the whole political spectrum by politicians to portray America at its best. And so I was reading a book by this guy called Alex Ross, who's a New York Times critic, Mm. really well known for being a great music critic. Mm. So he points out the irony that in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan used the music of Copeland, who is a gay left-wing Russian Jewish American, (gasps) and was using this as the soundtrack for the GOP's like uh, election platform, famously not a super progressive time in the Republican Party's history. Um, but then he sort of goes on to point out that Copeland was sort of much more of a pragmatist rather than like a radical idealist right. or a hardliner. So mm. he was actually happy for his music to speak for the whole country, even if his like intended message was somewhat diluted. I see what you mean, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think that's really interesting how he took the sort of European classical idiom and reshaped it into this... Uh, well, yeah, I've seen it described as Americanism. Yeah. Bit, of, bit of a clunky <laughs> word, but that's sort of what he was doing. Amazing. The Classical Podcast. Well, if you thought that was American, it's about to get flag-waving, oh, eagle-waving, yes. free up in here. Kind to the eagles, yes. <laughs> I'm so proud to be American that I'm waving an eagle around. Congratulations. That's how American That's we're how about to get. That's how I feel every day. <laughs> so the piece we're going to talk about now, as mentioned before, is Fanfare for the Common Man. What a tune! Isn't it a tune? Yeah. It's great. So this is from 1942 and really, really exemplifies Copeland's style. So this Americanism style that he was developing. Mm. So just in like musicological terms, they're really wide open harmonies. So lots of perfect fifths and octaves. So it's already mm-hmm. bold. Chris, what's a perfect fifth? For people that don't know what A perfect is. fifth. So notes of a scale, you've got eight notes in an octave. Mm-hmm. So one, two, three, four, five. One, five, one, five. That's Nailed perfect it. fifth. Great. Those together sound particularly sort of strong and bold. Nice, yeah. So we'll hear that. And this style that he developed with that sort of harmonisation has been copied a lot by other American composers. So he actually wrote a lot for films as well. Did he not? And uh, he did. And <laughs> this style has been copied by a bunch of other composers so that it now right. is sort of the American style. Wow. It's the one that uh-huh. people associate with American classical music, really. Got it. And if you don't know this piece already, oh my gosh, you need to see it live. So <laughs> ah! it's scored for basically the entire brass section of an orchestra mm-hmm. some big drums a bass drum some timpani some other percussion mm-hmm. 
And it's just this huge, like, blaring wall of brass sounds. And the first time, I've actually only ever seen it live once, but mm. the first and only time I saw it. Great gig. It, oh my <laughs> goodness, it was incredible. Yeah, it, yeah. let's Amazing. just listen to it and then let's we'll talk do about it. it. You know, I've seen, I feel like I've seen so many men in films walking slow motion to that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Especially like out of a spaceship, maybe. You yeah, know what absolutely. I mean? Mm. I mean, it's used by so many people in film and TV, like sports, political ceremonies, yeah. military celebrations, state funerals. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Emerson, Lake and Palmer, who are these like 70s rock group, they did a cover of it. Amazing. They were just like, dum, 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 dum. oh my God. Oh God, God, listen it's to that used one. all over the place. Mm. So the title for this piece, Fanfare for the Common Man, was uh, Copeland was inspired by the then vice president, Henry Wallace, who was Roosevelt's vice president. And he gave a speech talking about the 20th century being the century of the common man. So this was in the wake. a lot. (laughs) He meant it in the general term for human. Yeah. So this was in the wake of the New Deal, which was Roosevelt's uh, political response to the Great Depression that happened in the 19... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier in the 1920s. Well, this is a history um, lesson, isn't it? Bloody mm-hmm. yeah. uh, So this was quite a liberal response. So it's implemented a bunch of federal programmes, lots of governmental help for the ordinary folk on the street, basically. Got it. And so Copeland was pretty inspired by this. And he was like, yes, on board with this, the common man. So this fanfare was written uh, for the Cincinnati Symphony. So the conductor was um, the fantastically named Eugene Goosens, uh, who was actually a British guy. So he was the conductor of the Cincinnati <laughs> That's Symphony. Not a British at the name time. at all, though, is it? Well, he was British. Oh, well. Eugene Goosens. <laughs> I think it was even Sir Eugene by the end of his Sir life. Eugene. Anyway, he commissioned some fanfares for one of the seasons at the Cincinnati Symphony. And this just happened to be one of them. There are a bunch of others, but this is the only one that's really sort of endured. Mm-hmm. So to anyone who was familiar with American politics, calling it fanfare for the common man would have been a really obvious link to Henry Wallace's speech. But because he didn't really get it, he thought it was just sort of like a jokey title. like, or like oh, the common rude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so he programmed it for a concert on like income tax deadline day, being like, oh, the common man will appreciate it on tax day. <laughs> and Copeland was like, uh, yeah, sure. I think he eventually said it's a swell idea, but um, it's a swell idea. It's a swell idea, but it was mm. like uh, not really what I had in mind. But yeah, okay, sure, amazing. Yeah, so it's just a really wonderful, powerful piece. I think mm. that really sums up his policy of Americanism of doing these really like bold, brash, very non-European sounding classical yeah, music. Yeah, absolutely, for mm. sure. And also, just great, like, you know, if you heard that and you totally recognise it, but you didn't know who it was by, what it was from, now that's you why, you know, <laughs> now you do, like, tell people at dinner parties. When you're, no, might actually do this, in the middle of watching a film when it comes on, just tell the person next to you, they'll love that. 
like Everyone loves trivia like that. Yeah, come on, mid-film. So, Chris, what should we listen to if we want to hear more from Copeland? Well, uh, so both of those pieces, the rest of the Appalachian Spring as well. So mm-hmm. as I said, it's an orchestral suite, so not super long, but really, really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Lincoln's Portrait that I talked about earlier. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. That's a really cool piece. Mm-hmm. He wrote what was going to be an organ concerto for Nadia Boulanger, his teacher. Oh, yeah turned into more of a symphony for organ and orchestra. Cool. Uh, but that's a really cool. And I was reading a bit about Copeland and apparently walking, he walked into a rehearsal a bit late for this piece and it was the first time he'd heard a fully orchestrated version of his music before he'd only really heard it in his head. Oh, wow. And he was just like, what? Oh. This is so cool. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. So he had a real ability to write sort of big, powerful orchestral pieces. That awesome. Definitely worth checking out. And that, fine people, was our episode on Aaron Copeland and Eric Korngold. <laughs> Very good. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Absolutely. And if you did enjoy it, why not become a patron of the show? Um, you can head over to our Patreon account where you can support the show from as little as $1 a month. Yeah. And you can get all sorts of cool bonuses. We'll give you a little shout out on the show itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get behind the scenes exclusive. You get blooper reels. Yeah. You get free merchandise. You get a badge. You yeah. Get, yeah. Oh, nice. my goodness. So Lovely. many perks. Mm. Otherwise, where else can they find us and talk to us and well, love us? <laughs> that's Lazzie's. Um, the usual places so you can find us on twitter we're always tweeting a whole bunch of crap on there we're at that classical you can find us on instagram we're instagramming a whole load of crap on there we're at that classical insta and we're on facebook you can just type us into facebook that classical podcast and you can find us on our website as well www.thatclassicalpodcast.com and finally if you really really feel like it you can leave us a cheeky little review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you on there. Um, I think that's it, isn't it? Also, we've got a Spotify playlist. If you search That Classical Podcast True. on Spotify, <laughs> yes. not only can you listen to the podcast on Spotify, but we've got a playlist where we list all of the pieces we ever mention in yes, the do. podcast mm-hmm. and you can listen back to all of them in their full glory. Amazing. Well, thanks everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.